and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a podcast where I attempt to teach music history to my wife. Woo. (laughs) (laughs) I never know what to say there. I feel like by now you would have come up with something like standard to say there. I'm not Because I say the same thing every week. What should I say? That's it's your part. I don't know. I had enough time. Hard, I had a hard enough time writing my part. It's fine. We'll think about that later. Okay. For now, we're on to your plugs. What's the first of all? You had homework. I did not do it. <laughs> this is the part of class where, like, you were you like everyone is talking about. Did you get the answer to question number <laughs> six? And you're like, oh. Darn, no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know that I had to do that. <laughs> Your homework was to come up with a better name than Mika's plug because apparently you oh. don't like that name. So that was your homework was to think of a better name. But I'm guessing you did not do that. Pose top players. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I am vetoing that. <laughs> no way. Okay, okay, hold on. Let me think of another one. Would you like an extension on your homework? We can give you another week. I'm not good with names. (laughs) I'm not either. (laughs) Okay, we'll give you another week on that. But for now, we're going to keep calling it Mika's Plugs. So what are your plugs for this week? Um, My plugs are... My plugs are all of those ways that people are figuring out so that you don't have to like wear a mask behind your ears if you have to wear a mask all day. Like shout out to everyone, including my mother-in-law, who is coming up with like a headband type situation where you can like put the masks elastics on a button and and save your ears because that's amazing. So if you're one of those people that's like making masks or making those, thank you. That's so cool. And then my other plug is any of you makeup wearers out there. This is not the this is not the demographic, and I know it. But it I might have, be. I don't know who the demographic really, is. Yeah, who knows, <laughs> who knows who you are? We don't. I have, I have really oily skin, and I really like my Maybelline Lasting Fix Setting Spray because it like helps a lot, and so. I, I if you wanted it you could like try that out it's very like natural finish and also it makes my makeup last a little bit longer so that's cool and then a suggestion you can tell I've thought of these I you thought have, of them yeah. approximately five minutes ago but it's, it's a, better than how it is yeah. before when it's I was a big change from now. the early <laughs> days where it was like five minutes of us sitting here in silence while you stare <laughs> into the distance trying to <laughs> think of anything <laughs> Like, what's cool? Now I just don't care. Yeah, now you have like five minutes of just rambling about what you want to talk about. Honestly, it shouldn't be Mika's plugs. It should just be like Mika's podcast. And this is like my time to talk about whatever, which is what a podcast it's like, is. It's like My Brother, My Brother and Me, where they have a show within a show. They have a podcast within a podcast. This so is this that. is Mika's, Mika's this is show? Mika is the host now. That's the name. <laughs> That's the name. That's it's the name. All right, it's fine. It's the name until I come I up with a name. I love that, but all right, you we'll know, go with it. It's just because you don't want me to like dethrone you as the host. No, I just like Mika's plugs better. I don't, though. It <laughs> sounds weird. Okay. <laughs> anyway, if you guys have never put a little bit of lime in your whiskey and Coke, you got to do that. Okay? It's great. That's that's it. Okay. That's it. <laughs> okay. 
Well, we're already five minutes deep and we haven't even gotten to it. And I feel like this is going to be a longer episode already. The host now. Yes. Are you done being the host? Is it back to me? Actually, we're co-hosts. I'm not the only host. I just talk the most. I don't have anything insightful to say. So it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, follow us on social media and maybe you'll get more of Mika's thoughts and Mika's plugs on there. But probably not. Probably not, but maybe. I don't do social media. Nick doesn't do social media either. We're both very bad. I do social media for my job, so I know how to do it. I just don't do it personally. Regardless, uh, follow us on there. Twitter.com slash sound of history underscore and then Facebook.com slash sound of history and then keep up to date with all the fun stuff we're doing. Which is really just these podcasts, but also mm-hmm. pictures of the cats. I shared a picture of the book I'm reading yesterday. Oh, so wow. that's fun. Yeah. Look at us sharing our boring lives. <laughs> it's not boring. It's about Burt Williams. He was the first African American star in American music history. I did I did see you reading that and think it was cool. <laughs> but anyway, we're on to jazz now. And we've talked about jazz for like the past two episodes. We talked about where jazz came from and also a little bit about like how it got popular in the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age and how they kind of like played with each other a little bit. Uh, so do you want to give us like a, a brief recap of the past two episodes? You can go further back if you want, but preferably the past two episodes. It's not a great look on your face right now. <laughs> Did you forget already all about jazz? Listen, it's been like a week and a half. Just tell me anything you remember about jazz in general, and chances are it came from (laughs) this podcast. Um, I remember the father of jazz who was a disappointment to his grandmother and got disowned because he hung out in gentlemen's clubs. Um, I remember him. They were called sporting clubs at the time. Listen, women are not sports. I mean, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) His name was Jelly Roll Morton, by the way. Why am I in charge of the recaps again? Because I think it's funny. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I like hearing your spin on things, and I like knowing whether or not I'm actually teaching you well, which apparently I'm not doing a great job with jazz. I try to teach music history to my wife and I'm like he teaches it and then we get to this point and I'm like wow I'm such a disappointment I don't do my homework I don't remember anything that we've learned this is a major like because in high school in college you were a great student and now you've lost it I was a bad student and now I've and now you're like let's learn for fun all right well we'll we'll end that segment for your sake thanks but last week we talked about the Jazz Age and Prohibition and Speakeasies. We did in the Mobsters. Yeah. And Duke Ellington. We talked about him a little bit. Is he the guy who was at the crossroads? No. That was Robert Johnson. <laughs> that was the blues. <laughs> Duke Ellington was a band leader who did the It Don't Mean a Thing if if oh, yeah. you don't have that do-wop, swing. Do-wop, 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 yeah, that do-wop. guy. He was that dude. <laughs> So today, we're going to talk about one of the most important jazz musicians of the age. This guy, what? I know him. Yeah, you do. I know him a lot. This guy redefined jazz and gave it its famous solo improvisational characteristic, Louis Armstrong. I was going to say it. Oh, okay. Well, say it then. Louis Armstrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> I did it better. So what all do you know about Louis or Lewis, depending on who you ask? Trumpet. Okay. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he a is a trumpet. I mean, I I know some of his music, even though if you ask me to say which songs are his, I can't. Um, he has such a distinct voice. I feel like. Oh, I know his yeah, voice. I just don't sure. know which songs, like out off the top of my head. Um, trumpet and voice and wonderful. Okay, yeah. I mean, that sums him up. <laughs> just, just the bestest. Yeah, but I mean, I mentioned this last week, but I'll, I'll say it again here. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Apparently no Louis, one. Louis apparently Armstrong. no one is for sure because he said Lewis quite a few times, and he made some comment about how white people call him Louis. Oh no! But also in like the intro to one of his songs, he called himself Louis, and he signed like a census and wrote his name not how it's spelled, but like phonetically, like L E W E E or something like that. So I, there's a whole lot of confusion about how to pronounce his name, but I've always heard Louis, and it would throw me off to change it to Lewis, so I'm going with Louis. Just call him Lou. <laughs> Just start a new Just trend. call him Armstrong. Lou. Be super serious about it. No, we're going with Louis, because that's, that's what I know him as. So that's what I'm going with. My parents had a friend named Lou. He was really cool, and he bought just a ton of my Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> I didn't know you were in the Girl Scouts. I was a brownie for approximately 0.5 seconds. <laughs> Enough to sell cookies and get out. Yeah. You just joined it to get the cookies, didn't you? No, you can buy the cookies if you're not a Girl Scout. That's true. Anyway, Louis Armstrong was born in New Orleans to Mary Albert and William Armstrong. Mary Albert? Yep. Ooh. Mary was 16 when she gave birth, and William abandoned the family shortly after. What's with these dudes? Stop <laughs> it, dudes. Louis always claimed that he was born on July 4th, 1900, but baptismal records prove that he was actually born on August 4th, 1901, which isn't quite as nice of a date, I guess. So Why? Listen, if I'm going to make something up about myself, it's definitely not going to be my birthday that <laughs> I have no control over. It's possible he just didn't know. <laughs> it's possible yeah. it wasn't a big deal when he was a kid and he was just like... It was around this time, and July 4th, 1900 is such like a... An easy number. Yeah, like 1900 is the turn of the century. I July mean, 4th is July 4th. I so don't know let's go what... With that. I don't know how old I am, so like yeah, I, I can understand someone being like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm about as old as this century. <laughs> <laughs> Until he turned five. Oh, what? Nothing. I was about to say people born this year can do that, and that's not the case because nope, it's, it's 2020, and, and and 2000 would be the century. Yeah. I can do math. <laughs> You're, you are good at math. <laughs> this is this improving thing, it. This thing that I am, I'm going to tell all of you people about myself, it's not my birthday, because then you'd know my name and my birthday, and that seems like it would mm -hmm. maybe not be a good idea to put on the internet. <laughs> I'm really smart, <laughs> even though it doesn't come across <laughs> ever in this podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Until he turned five, Louis was raised by his grandmother. I'm honestly not sure what happened to his mom. I don't know where she was during this point. She was but 16, and so true. she was also being raised by <laughs> Louis's grandmother. That's probably true. His uh, maybe not in that time. His grandmother made a little bit of money washing clothes for white people, but really it was like 
nothing at all. They were horribly poor, and uh, during this time, Louis hardly ever wore shoes. I don't know if the two are related, but it was a comment I saw, so I went with it. However, his grandmother made sure that he was always in school and church. He was... Just like me. Yeah. <laughs> he was returned to his mother and grew up in a very rough area of New Orleans, probably around the age of five. It was so bad, they named it the Battlefield because of all the shootings and stabbings that happened in oh, it. Oh, that's no good. Yep. I think it was Storyville, or that might have been something different. I don't know, but whatever. It was called the Battlefield. See, with stuff like that about his childhood, why does he have to make up his birthday? <laughs> Because they didn't know it, and people probably wanted to know it. So he's like, all right, fine. <laughs> By the age of seven, Louis was trying to find work. He would sell newspapers, scavenge scrap metal from burned buildings, really anything he could to like earn a couple bucks to help out his family. During this time, he started doing odd jobs for a Lithuanian Jewish family named the Karnovskis. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I paused because it looked like you had something more to say there. So. Nope. Just taking it in. All right, fair. They took him They took him in and treated him like family. It was with the Karnofskys that Louis started to understand the discrimination that Jewish Americans faced. And he would later write in his autobiography, I was only seven years old, but I could easily see the ungodly treatment that the white folks were handing the poor Jewish family whom I worked for. He would wear a Star of David pendant for the rest of his life in honor of them. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. His longtime manager was a Russian Jew, and Louis would always speak out against anti-Semitism. It was like a really big thing for him. At the age of 11, Louis dropped out of school. He joined a quartet of boys who would sing on the street for money. And this was probably where he first heard early jazz being played in like brothels and stuff in downtown New Orleans. Because, I mean, he's, that's his career now, so he's just around those areas. It's perfect for a little boy. <laughs> but you know what? He grew up around stabbing so mm -hmm. it did work out yeah. in 1913 when louis was 12 his life changed he picked up a trumpet i don't know no i, I said sorry. that kind of perky but it was not perky it, like oh the, a no. bad thing happens oh no <laughs> so i probably shouldn't have said it like that that's not that one's on me <laughs> it was new year's eve night Doing a, during a New Orleans street party. But are we sure it was New Year's Eve, or was that just the closest <laughs> date that he it was New Year's attribute Eve. it to? <laughs> it was New Year's Eve. Louis fired a gun that he had stolen from his stepfather just randomly into the air in celebration. Because of that, he was arrested and oh spent God. the night in jail. The next morning, he was sent to live at the Colored Waifs Home for Boys, which was a, refer which was a reform school for black boys. The school apparently was intense. There were no mattresses, very sparse meals, like, things were rough. Let's reform them by treating them like animals. <laughs> the owner, who was a man named Captain Jones, oh ran God. it like a military camp. But it sounded like a, probably a little bit worse than even, like, military students had to deal with. Yeah, I'm sure that they had, you know, mattresses and food. Yeah, probably. The Wave School had a brass band led by a guy named Peter Davis. Apparently, according to one story I heard at least, Davis was reluctant to let Louis join the band at first, but Louis worked hard enough and eventually became the band leader, and the coronet was his primary instrument. Do you remember the coronet? Drunk trombone. Drunk trombone? <laughs> yeah, it's all twisty. You called it the twisty trumpet. 
but I guess we can go with drunk trombone. <laughs> that was just a new one for me. <laughs> Same thing, drunk Is twisty. <laughs> yep. All right, so it's now the drunk twisty. <laughs> no, I was <laughs> drunk and twisty are similar ways to describe the weirdness of it, but you know what? Maybe, yep. but trumpet and trombone aren't the same instrument. I don't know. <laughs> okay. The drunk twisty was his primary instrument. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Captain Jones had actually given him his first drunk twisty. By leading this band, he started to get the attention of professional jazz musicians around New Orleans, most notably a guy named Kid Ory, who was a trombonist and band leader who was, like, super popular. Louis was released from the home in 1914 and started working manual labor to make ends meet. So for people who don't like dates, how long was that? Uh, he went in in 1913 and left okay. in 1914, so okay. not that long. Year and a half, two years. You're not spending a year and a half in a... Yeah, but... <laughs> he started... Uh, so Louis started to visit a few of the nightclubs around town to hear the jazz musicians playing. <laughs> It was in the Funky Butt Hall. Oh, my God. <laughs> that sounds like I named it. <laughs> that Louis met a fellow uh, drunk twistiest that would change his life, King Oliver. Eventually, he would take a job playing in steamships and riverboats around New Orleans where he got to, like, practice his craft. Hey, so um, where did he meet this guy? The Funky Butt Hall. And what was his name? King Oliver. And And he played what now? The Drunk Twisty, <laughs> also known as a coronet for our more refined audience. <laughs> Listen, I can't clean up Funky Butthole, <laughs> so that's the name. So. <laughs> we don't play with refinery around here. What are you talking about? Through his time playing on riverboats, his skill increased and expanded. He got better and better during this time. Working on one of the boats, the owner of the boat demanded that his musicians know how to actually read music. So Louis finally started learning how to read mu music at around the age of 20. King Oliver, who had become Louis' mentor and friend, moved to New Orleans as a young man and spent a lot of time playing in brass and jazz bands in the Red Light District. A band he co-led with Kid Ory was considered one of the best bands in New Orleans in the 1910s. And so, I mean, all in all, a good person to meet and get in line or fall in with. In 1919, Oliver decided to move to Chicago, so Louis Armstrong took his position in the band with Kid Ory. In August of 1922, King Oliver convinced Louis to move to Chicago and be a member of his band. This was when his career really started to take off. He played second drunk twisty behind Oliver for the Creole Jazz Band. Not just one, but two! Yeah, he had two drunk twisties, and Louis was second drunk twisty. I watched an interview with Louis later in his life where he was asked about that invitation to play in Chicago. The guy asked him, like, were you surprised? What were you thinking about that? And he said he was really happy about it because no one else could get him out of New Orleans. King Oliver was the only one who could do that, so Louis was willing to take the risk on it. He didn't really even know who was in the band when he agreed to join it. He just wanted out of New Orleans, and that was the only way, so he did it. Bold. Yeah. He was very careful to not outshine Oliver in his playing. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah. That's so polite. Well, that was a good way to get kicked out of the band. 
What? Like, by playing better than the band leader. Oh, it was I a good way to. That, okay, I thought you meant that because he was being like politely. Like they were gonna kick him out because like, well, he wasn't good enough. And I was <laughs> be like, what? No, okay. he was trying not to upstage the band leader. Get kicked out of the yes. band. Yep, that makes sense. And that band was regarded as one of the most influential bands in Chicago during this time period. And like while he was in it, Louis lived like a king. He had his own luxury apartment with a private bath. For someone from the battlefield, that was quite an improvement. In 1923, Armstrong made his first recording as a soloist as part of that band in a song called in a song called Chimes Blues for a label called Garnet Records. I've never heard of Garnet Records, but I mean, they have this distinction, so that's good for them. The group traveled to Richmond, Indiana, a hotbed for music. Richmond, Indiana. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I was like, all right, different, different times, sure. And they were paid very little for the recordings. Due to lack of practice, crude recording equipment, and bad acoustics, the records weren't that great. Louis said that the whole band played into one large horn, and if you had a solo, you had to be right in front of the horn or else you wouldn't be heard. And he also made sure to point out that they played without drums. So do you want to okay. hear Chimes Blues by I the do. Creole Jazz Band? I do. King Oliver's Band. Yeah, but I'm I'm just thinking of like big bands big that band. jazz would turn into okay. in a few years. This is fun. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's not the best quality. You can kind of tell None that. None of this has been the best quality. No, so. but this is even a little bit worse. Like that, the Duke Ellington song we listened to last week was pretty good. That was pretty good. But I think that was later. It was late. Well, that was the Creole Jazz Band, King Oliver's Band. In this band, Louis started to date the pianist named Lil Hardin. She was classically trained from Memphis, and she would become Louis' second wife. I don't really know about the first one. I didn't really look into that that much. She wasn't as important as Hardin, so I went with Lil. She was, like, one of the first people to understand how talented Louis actually was, and she probably understood it a little better than he did, and she convinced him to leave King Oliver and strike out on his own. Wow. Tensions were already... It could be a real Yoko Ono Yeah, it really could. But tensions were already kind of growing in Oliver's band. People, primarily Lil, thought that Oliver was holding Louis back and stifling his creativity. Also, Oliver might have been keeping money owed to Louis and the other band members for himself. That might be a problem. That yeah. might be a reason to leave. Yeah, a little bit. So with Lil's constant pressure, Louis quit the band in 1924. Despite the tension, the split was amicable. King Oliver was his musical mentor, so I'm sure it was hard for Louis to leave him. But he was clearly destined for greater things than second drunk twisty behind King Oliver. Lil had a lot of influence over his career at this point. She was booking him shows around Chicago, and she encouraged him to broaden his play style by playing in like church concerts and through that he learned a more refined style of playing it wasn't the new orleans brothel music that he had been playing <laughs> she convinced him to wear more stylish clothes to offset his girth <laughs> <laughs> whoa 
what a loving girlfriend. <laughs> Wait, wife. Yes, wife. <laughs> That's right. Girlfriends wouldn't say that. Well, I mean. <laughs> Never mind. Lil was classically trained, so she probably saw the importance of having at least like a little bit more musical education than Louis had ever had, so she kind of convinced him to do that. At this point, he worked briefly for another Chicago band before he moved to New York City at the invitation of band leader Fletcher Henderson, who was a big deal. That's a great name. I think we'll talk about him a little bit more in a couple weeks when we talk about swing. I'm not sure, but he's like Fletcher's a Fletcher's a big name in jazz and swing. Fletcher Henderson. Yep. I dig it. Okay. <laughs> this band played mostly live gigs, and they did a few recordings, but they were known for their live music. This band started to play backing music for popular blues singers like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. That really I like Ma Rainey. Yeah. We listened to one of uh, Ma Rainey's songs she did with Louie during the, the That's blues. That's right. Yeah. So that was during this period. And playing with musicians like that, who already kind of had a stage, really started to propel Louis' career and popularity. Around this time, Lil was promoting him around Chicago as, quote, the world's greatest trumpet player. What kind of trumpet? Uh, just trumpet in general. I did say he was trumpet. Yeah. Because eventually he switched from the trunk twisty to the trumpet. He uh, had to grow up one day. Yeah, I guess. Again, Lil was convinced that Fletcher Henderson was holding back Louis' creativity and urged him to move back to Chicago, which he did roughly 14 months after leaving it in the first place. I think Lil pretty much just wanted him to have his own band because she saw that talent in him. But I also think Lil just really loved Chicago and wanted him back there because she didn't want to go to New York. But whatever. And Louis finally actually got his own band. Louis and Lil started their own studio band called Louis Armstrong and His Hot Five. I've heard of them. Yeah. A lot of their recordings feature Louis' signature raspy vocals, which was mm. one of the most popular of this era. It was called was a song called Heebie Jeebies, in which Louis launches into a scat style singing. He didn't invent scatting by any means, but he was the one who like made it wildly popular. Do you want to hear heebie-jeebies? Yes, I want to hear heebie-jeebies. So this is like, people weren't used at all to Louis Armstrong style vocals. So this was a shock for people. vocal just like sent shockwaves through American music. People were like, what is this? Too bad, we're moving on. <laughs> that was heebie-jeebies. We'll listen to more of his stuff in a little bit. They also recorded a song called Muggles. 
which was a slang term for marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and Louie was known to frequently use marijuana throughout his life. Okay. <laughs> Kid Ori, the guy from his old days in New Orleans, was a member of the Hot Five. Oh, how times have changed for him. He went from leading one of the best bands in New Orleans to now being in Louie's band. They produced 24 records over a 12-month period in 1924. Sound like he was doing... Bad for himself, jumping from his best band in New Orleans to Louis. Like yeah, that that's sounds true. pretty great, actually. That's yeah, true. Louis proved to be a very easygoing and generous band leader, according to one member of his band. "Quote: One felt so relaxed working with him, and he was very broad-minded. Always did his best to feature each individual." That's nice. Mm-hmm. Louis is a great guy. During this period, Louis permanently switched from the drunk twisty to the trumpet. It was also during this time that he started to develop the improvisational style that made him famous and also completely changed jazz. No big deal. <laughs> because of the huge success of Heebie Jeebies, the song we listened to earlier, the Hot Five became one of the biggest jazz bands in the country, even though they hadn't actually played live all that much. They were a studio band. Louis' style of jazz was fresh and new in a genre that was already pretty fresh and new. No one had heard the kind of stuff he was doing before, and he also had a very distinct stage presence that made him a bit of a spectacle for audiences. What did he do? I don't know. I, th- I mean, he's a super charismatic person, so I think it was just like being very charismatic he's on stage. He's just a was, wonderful person. Yes, and, he's and just Louis Armstrong. Him. Yeah, basically. Got you. He would be in a few other bands after the Hot Five around Chicago, but he wouldn't necessarily be a band leader, but he would lend his names to the bands because he was the best-known member, and that would kind of, like, up their status, but he didn't actually do much leading. In 1929, due to the name recognition he now had countrywide, Louis returned to New York, but Lil did not want to leave Chicago. They would stay married but lived apart for most of the last nine years before divorcing in 1938. Part of me is torn, like, with, come on, Lil, like, just, just go. Just go be with your person. But, like, also I'm thinking, like, okay. Also, Louie could have stayed with his person. That's true, too. He had big stuff going on. (laughs) She might have, too. She might have, too. She being her own strong, Mm -hmm. independent woman. So, in New York City this time, Louis found a new avenue for his talents. He was cast in an all-black review as a singer with a trumpet solo in the song Ain't Misbehavin'. What? I know that. You know that song? It became a top ten song in his best-selling record to date. His showmanship and charisma gave him an even bigger following by performing in this show. He was just like teetering into superstardom and now the world could like actually see his talent. So here's Ain't Misbehaving, the song you already know. Let's try to get to his vocals because I like his vocals. Fast forward. Really, 
So everything was going great, but then the Great Depression hit, which was especially hard on the jazz scene. The jazz age, as we talked about last week, was characterized by lavish spending, materialism, and wild hedonism. None of that was really possible during the Great Depression. People just needed work, and Louis was having a hard time finding it. The Cotton Club, which was the pinnacle jazz spot, which is where Duke Ellington performed, and he had his uh, performances broadcasted on the radio. It was like the jazz club. It closed down after a long downward spiral. Club dates were sparse and getting rarer. A few of the top jazz musicians completely gave up music altogether. Feeling pretty desperate, Louis moved to Los Angeles in 1930, seeking a new start. That is generally when people <laughs> move. To, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's true. He was able to find some work in clubs, most notably at the new Cotton Club, and made a few more records. He made his first movie appearance, playing himself in a movie called X-Flame. During this time, he got arrested for marijuana possession in November of 1930. Sounds about right. And received a suspended sentence. He was actually the first celebrity conviction for marijuana use after a new law was passed in California against it. Weird. He and his friend were caught smoking in the parking lot of the new Cotton Club. And after his arrest, probably as a, like... We'll give you a suspended sentence if you say that. Louis made a public statement that he would never use weed again. <laughs> but that was a lie. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> it was also during this time in California that he started to write ballads and his musical ability expanded even further. Cool. Here's an example of one of Louis's ballads. Yay. A song called If We Never Meet Again. He's the trumpet king of swing in person. We don't listen to music like this enough. Arrest Louis left California, understandable, 
and returned to Chicago. His marriage with Lil was on the rocks at this point. Also during this time... Well, he moved to L.A. Yeah, I mean, they were still married until 1938, but... Like, you think Chicago to New York is far. (laughs) So during this time, two rival mob bosses were feuding over his management contract. There was an outfit from New York and an outfit from Chicago. According to Louis, he had no idea about any of this. That's funny. I mean, which is, he probably knew about it, but it was like a PR move to be like, I have no idea about any mob stuff. (laughs) Louis was playing in Chicago at a place called The Showboat when guys from the New York mob outfit came to pressure him into taking a job he didn't want at a club in Harlem. Apparently, they came in and started a fight on the dance floor right in front of Louis while he was playing. A dance fight? (laughs) No, an actual fist fight. Are you sure? On the dance floor. Are you sure it wasn't like a dance off? Pretty sure mobsters weren't doing a dance fight. I'm pretty sure mobsters doing a dance (laughs) fight is the best (laughs) mental picture I've ever had. Louis continued playing, and since he normally played with his eyes closed, completely ignored or missed the fight that was happening right in front of him. (laughs) You good? <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> the next night, a gangster whispered. Wait, wait, there's the next night after this? Yeah, he's playing at the club for a little bit. He just. I, I guess they were like, it? all right, that's fine, it. we'll reopen. There was, there was a dance yep. off. No, well, <laughs> in your mind, yes. Louis and ignored it. Didn't it. Get resu- and so then it's just, all right, round two. Yeah. Well, like the gangsters were trying to intimidate him and be like, we're going to come and like fight people if you don't come do what we want. And he ignored it because he played with his eyes closed. <laughs> but the next night, a gangster, I don't know, I don't know how this happened. I don't know if it was while he was playing or what, but a gangster whispered into his ear, someone wants to talk to you in the dressing room. So when he went back there, there was a tough guy sitting in the dark with a pistol in his hand. <laughs> Very movie-esque. And he said, quote, you're going to New York. You're leaving on the first train tomorrow morning, and you'll be playing at Connie's Inn tomorrow night, which was the club in Harlem that we had no interest in playing at. (laughs) Much like Michael Scott, Louis decided to defy the mob's orders. Yeah. He boarded a train in the middle of the night and wound up in Louisville, where he led the first all-black band at the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) Which is like if you're trying to lay low from the mob, what are you doing leading bands at the Kentucky Derby? Kentucky. No <laughs> one's... It's That's fine. true. They're not going to go there. Then he kept going south and went to New Orleans for the first time since he left for Chicago about 10 years earlier. He received a hero's welcome there, and he spent time with Captain Jones, the head of the Colored Waifs home. And the guy who gave him his first trist, uh, drunk twisty. Sorry, I forgot the name of it. How? <laughs> He sponsored a baseball team while he was down there, and he had a cigar named after him. Cute. But soon, the pressure from the mob... Cigar, because he stopped smoking weed. Yes, He switched to cigars. (laughs) I can see the commercial right now. (laughs) But soon, the pressure from the mob got a little bit too strong for him to ignore, so he fled to Europe and embarked on his first European tour. This is amazing. He's like, all right, well, I'm just going to tour here now. Yeah. He saw a lot of success in England and Scandinavia, where he continued to record music. 
Ben's not laying low. No, it's not. But I mean, he's in Europe now. I don't think the mob has the mob can't pull get over to there to no. Europe. I mean, they can, but they don't. They don't have the connections they have in America. Louis returned to America, but times were tough. His longtime agent, Johnny Collins, spent a lot of money and it left Louis short on cash. His fingers and lips were worn down from his unorthodox trumpet style. He had debts and breach of contract lawsuits plaguing him. So Louis hired a new manager named Joe Glasser, who was very mob connected. He was a Glasser managed to straighten out his debts and his mob troubles. And apparently he was like a very rough dude that was a tough negotiator, probably because he was in the mob. <laughs> that, with all of that bad stuff off of his plate, Louis branched out and focused on vocals and appearing in some more movies, including one with Bing Crosby. In 1937, Louis became the first African-American to host a nationally sponsored broadcast when he subbed in for Rudy Valley on the CBS radio network. Fun. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that because we have an episode about Rudy Valley that we're going to do. Ooh. Uh, the late 1930s really ushered in the second phase of Louis' career. He was an international star for more than just playing jazz music. He fell in love with Lucille Wilson and married her in 1942. She would be his fourth and final wife. Where was wife number three? I don't. There's some that aren't <laughs> important. There were two that hey, weren't important. So they I are them out. important. I guess, but they were more short. Li- like Lil, I had to talk about because she was the one who convinced a lot of the great career changes. And excuses, excuses. Listen, all women are important. All that is people very true. are important. How dare you that minimize true, their relationship? In terms of the story. After years of hard touring, Louis settled with his new wife in Queens in 1943. Is this wife number four or five? This is four. Four well, was I mean, his you final never know wife. Because well, I said it was his fourth and final wife, so you can guess. I mean, people who are paying attention could have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New York was a rough place to be at that time. The mob was everywhere, and there was racial prejudice against black musicians. But he continued to play. Just specifically musicians. Well, I mean, all just, people, just black but musicians. In terms of Louis' career, musicians. But in general, <laughs> but Louis continued to play and kind of like develop and hone his signature style. Over the next 30 years, Louis averaged 300 performances a year, but his old style was considered obsolete. The big jazz bands became outdated and expensive to tour, mm. but the 40s brought a revived interest in the small band style of jazz that was popular during his youth. So Louis formed a six piece group called Louis and the All Stars, just like the old days. They played the old New Orleans style of jazz in New York to great reviews, but a lot of the younger crowd didn't like him. They didn't like his theatrics while he played, and they thought he was a washed-up relic of the Old South. That's so sad. It is. The up-and-coming jazz musicians didn't like him at all. They thought his style came off as Uncle Tomish. What? I Why? guess because he's trying to play up to white audiences, I guess. Huh. I don't know, but I mean, I feel like he's learned now, like, I don't care, I'm making money. <laughs> so, One of those up-and-coming jazz musicians said, quote, he seemed a link to minstrelsy that we were ashamed of. Oh, I don't, no. That seems harsh. I don't know how that, but whatever. Because he's, like, theatrical? I guess. I think it's just the idea of these, like, people like Burt Williams and other black entertainers back in minstrelsy join minstrel troops because it was the way they could 
survive and thrive in show business. So I guess it was like them saying like he just catered to the wide audiences mm-hmm. because it's what let him thrive. And he was like trying to pretend to fit in and go along with this even though it's degrading to African Americans. It, ju- it seems harsh. It's harsh. But Louis didn't really care about any of that. Good. He considered himself an, entainer, an entertainer instead of a musician. Louis appeared in more movies and toured Japan and Africa with the All-Stars. Wow. Yeah, this is when he became known as an ambassador for jazz. Like, I don't know if officially or whatever, but that's what people call him. Probably not. <laughs> in 1957, he faced some controversy for speaking out against racial discrimination. How dare he? And this was during the period when schools were starting to be desegregated. So this led to some radio stations refusing to play his music. Oh, my God. Yeah. Joke's on them. Yeah, for real. Because, I mean, we still know Louie, and we have no clue who they were. So, hmm. In 1959, he suffered a major heart attack while touring in Italy that sent him back home. Despite doctor recommendations, he returned to a busy touring life after about a week in the hospital. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> Louis had continued playing for 50 years without a number one song. That finally ended in 1964 when he released a song called Hello Dolly. It knocked off the Beatles, who had been number one for 14 weeks, and made him, at 62 years old, the oldest person to ever have a number one. Here is Hello Dolly. It's a live performance too, so you get to see him play. lips where they're worn down. Like his top lip, it's like dented at the front. That was so cute! No, what was it doing? It's going to be stuck in my head all night. (laughs) You can listen to it on your... Louis kept touring through his 60s despite kidney and heart issues. Again, against his doctor's orders, he played a two-week engagement in 1971. Afterward, he was hospitalized again for another heart attack. Immediately after getting out, he made plans to start performing again. But he suffered a final heart attack and died in his sleep in 1971. Mm. Some of his honorary pallbearers included people like Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Johnny Carson, Ed Sullivan, and Frank Sinatra. Everyone loved Louis. Louis is still one of the most important and best musicians in American history. Miles Davis once admitted, you know you can't play anything on the horn that Louis hasn't played. And Bing Crosby once said that Louis was, quote, the beginning and end of music in America. He's truly an American musical legend and an all-around great guy. He was always generous and humble to pretty much everyone. Duke Ellington, who was one of the jazz performers, who was one of the best jazz performers of all time, said about him, quote, if anybody was a master, it was Louis Armstrong. 
Louis was on the forefront of introducing solos into jazz and changing it from the ensemble-centric style it used to be. He was a super lovable guy with a great stage persona and a voice unlike anything people had heard before. A New York Times commemorative issue in 1991 said, quote, The power of his genius combined with his living manner forced whites to rethink their racism, whether oh. they knew it or not. What a strong yeah. way to live. That's For sure. something. Yeah, I, I mean, Bing Crosby, who was probably like, the biggest musician and entertainer of this of like the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. absolutely loved him like he like he worshipped Louis Armstrong because he understood like how insanely talented and gifted he was and that I just finished reading a biography about being Armstrong or being Crosby being Armstrong and it's their ship name the the author of that book just kept talking about how Louis was like the biggest explosive force in American music history. Like he just came onto the scene and just completely changed everything. Like he was it's just absurd what he was able to do. That's so cool. Yeah. That's Louis Armstrong. It's a longer episode, but Louis was worth it, I think. I wanna listen to the movie version. I okay. Watch it. You can do that. Is there I don't have any correction corner. Do you have a correction corner? No, I have this. I'll put this will be the outro music. We'll play it while we're talking about the outro. Well, hello, Lucas. Hey, darling. Is there anything is you want to add about Louis Armstrong? It's so nice to have you Just back this. where you belong. I am so glad I'm, to be I'm going to say there's probably oh, some look, things. Well, hmm. Thank you, Louis. Darling. I can tell Look at them together. So there's probably things I left out about Louie. Because I've noticed when I do these episodes about specific people, I tend to focus on their early life more and when they're getting started just because that's the part that's the most interesting to me. So especially when he was already an established star, I probably left out quite a few things. But, I mean, Louie did so much, it's hard to, like... Exactly. So, feel free to talk about the things you love about Louie in the tweet and the Facebook post about this episode. Mm. Alright. Next week, do you know who we're talking about yet? Yep. We're going to be talking about Ella Fitzgerald next week. I can't wait. So join us when we talk about that. Alright. Bye, guys. Enjoy. Hello, darling. Wow. Darling,